You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. talking about what to me the fascinating topic i'm always interested in, to- in topics that deal with the uh, with the news medium and especially interested in news in, in newspapers because they were really the first in terms of reaching out to the uh, the public and there's there was a symposium um that was held which um which, which dealt with that very topic and that's what we're gonna talk about we're, we're gonna talk about the history of the Louis- of, of, of newspapers in louisiana it was called Above the Fold was a symposium, the history of newspapers in Louisiana. And we'll give you some more information about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, it was put together by the Historic New Orleans Collection, which is really one of the great institutions in, uh, uh, in New Orleans. With me is Jerry Honore, uh, who's, um, you, you work for the collection, and, and uh, what is your specialty, family, and that sort of thing? Or, uh? Sure. My title is Family Historian in the Williams Research Center at the Historic New Orleans Collection. All right. Um, to read everything about you, by the time we finish, we have to sign off, okay? <laughs> All right. And so I think a relative uh, or, or relevant point is here is that you're a, a proud Louisiana Creole with roots dating back more than two centuries along Bayou Lafourche and the German Acadian coast. Graduate of St. Aug High School and Tulane University, and you serve as a family historian at the Williams Research Center at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Let's start off because I think it's people know the less about the least about, but want to know more about, and that is the uh, evolution of the black newspapers in Louisiana. Sure, that is uh, definitely going to be a focus of the symposium on February twenty fourth. In fact, the keynote address will be a conversation between myself and Mark Charles Rudinay, who's an independent scholar and a great great grandson of Dr. Louis Charles Rudinay, who founded L'Union which in 1862 was actually the first black newspaper in the South, below the Mason-Dixon line. And where was it started? It was started right in the French Quarter, um, in fact, just around the corner from the uh, Williams Research Center of the collection on uh, on, uh, Conti Street in September of 1862. So this is just a few months after the city falls into Union hands, and these free men of color feel comfortable enough to establish a journal that is boldly titled in French, L'Union, or The Union, because, of course, they were uh, unionist, uh, uh-huh. unionist, union supporters. Now, was it written in English or in French? It was bilingual. It was uh-huh. bilingual. Uh, it had a French and English edition. The, English, uh, the French edition had a bit more local news, obituaries, cultural and arts uh, coverage, uh, but it was read across the globe, Victor Hugo, was in correspondence with these men, Charles Sumner, the great abolitionist senator out of Massachusetts, Frederick Douglass, um, uh, at one point... That's a pretty heavy list right there. Frederick Douglass and Victor uh, Hugo, wow. Yeah, yeah, because these men, uh, a lot of them were trained uh, in Europe, had obtained their educations there, and had been involved in uh, the revolution of 1848 and things like this. So they were just um, uh, radical Republicans... Plus, plus, you know, they, they, they had had that uh, international experience with these sort of peasant rebellions. Um, and that's what they viewed 
uh, the, 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 the upheaval of the Civil War as. as so as were these newspapers, as is probably common to a lot of newspapers, more of like voices for the cause and dealing with those kind of issues and, and not so much about someone got arrested for robbing a bakery, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it was a broader picture sort of thing. Absolutely, and, and you're right to point that out. I think that throughout the history of um, these uh, historically African-American newspapers and all the alternative media, they're not daily rags. They're not, they're not there to cover uh, arrest and, and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing. But the editorial viewpoint is what they provide, the voice. Now, how were they paid for? Well, uh, the the Lunion and especially its successor paper in 1864, the Tribune, uh, they relied upon um, uh, public notices being official organs uh, for the parish government for the majority of their support. And Dr. Rudinez himself, who was a twice-degreed uh, physician from Dartmouth and the Univer- uh, University of Paris, uh, he sank at least $30,000 into these newspapers himself. Uh, so between p- personal funds and support they got from the Republican Party at that time until they sort of bucked the, the, the prevailing wing of the Republican Party, that's when the paper really, really shut down. Uh, what was the frequency of it? Well, L'Union was, um, was, a, uh, uh, was a weekly uh, paper, uh, its successor, 1864, the Tribune, was a daily paper, and that it was uh, a watershed moment because it was the first black daily in America, published really? right here in New Orleans from 1864 through about 1870 when the frequency starts to, uh, starts to wane a little bit. Yeah. Um, but no, no other paper had, uh, had been a daily before, no other black paper had been a daily before that. Yeah. That was a pretty volatile time, too. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, the, uh, during the Mechanics Institute massacre in uh, 1866, the site that's now uh, more or less the Roosevelt Hotel, um, unions, black Union soldiers actually stood guard in front of the paper to protect its presses um, because there was a fear that, that the building would be ransacked and the presses destroyed. So people understood the importance of, uh, of the newspaper as, as a voice, and a voice that was really ahead of its time. These men were, were, were um, forerunners of, I guess, what we promote now as sort of a colorblind society. They wanted absolute equality <coughs> for everybody immediately. Did that happen? No. But, uh, but that's, what they, that's what they advocated for. Um, and it didn't end with them. It continued with the Crusader, published by Louis Martinet and the group that backed the Plessy Ferguson case in the 1890s, with uh, in the 1920s with the founding of the Louisiana Weekly, which next year will celebrate its centennial, um, and, and even to the present day with the modern Tribune, founded by the McKenna family, I- as an homage to the, to the 19th century Tribune. Well, back in the early days, there were lots of newspapers, uh, not just the black newspapers, the white newspapers. I guess it's because it, that was the main way of communicating at, at the time. I mean, that, that, that's how you work it out. And so, but you look at the you look and you see at, at the papers that... Uh, um, that survived. There were there were many of the early newspapers. What was the one that had that did the best in terms of surviving? Well, I think the one that that, that sort of wins the prize for longevity would be our our primary daily, which is the Picayune. Um, started in the 1830s, uh, named for as I think most New Orleanians know a, a smaller denomination mm-hmm. of Spanish coin, a Picayon, um, and it has survived despite. Um, the many challenges that it's faced, mergers first with the New Orleans Times and then 
uh, taking the role of, of the old the old states item, um, and now you know being a, a part of the advocate family of newspapers. So I think it wins the prize for longevity. One of my personal favorites that uh, I always bring up to visitors at the collection is La Bella or the New Orleans Bee, yeah. which for just shy of a century was a French language daily newspaper in New Orleans, and it didn't even start publication until two, three decades after New Orleans had ceased to be a French possession, but it shows the longevity, the continuation of the French language as a household language in New Orleans. There used to be a, um, a columnist with the old um, Picayune, and, or reminded me with the item, they kind of went back and forth named Pi Dufort. Yeah, sure, Charles and he Dufour. was on the story and thing. But he always, I, I remember he always said, I think it was his grandfather. He says, "My grandfather founded La Bay. The uh, it means the bee. I think yeah. his grandfather. I, I can still picture him talking to him. His, his name was Numa, Numa Dufour. He he, he founded La Bay, and so I think he was very very proud to come from that uh, come from that family. It was an institution, and I think that New Orleans is unique in that regard, and that you know people will still sometimes say, I, I won't believe it until I see it in the Picayune, or." In the African American community, people will say, "I won't see it. I won't believe it until I see it in the Louisiana Weekly, mm-hmm. published by the Dejois family for uh, for these past ninety nine years." So, yeah, I think we still cling to our newspapers. We are still one of the few places where, as opposed to just the bare bones death notices, whether you are a postman or a garbage man or the head of an investment firm, everybody wants the lengthy, uh, you know, obituaries and. Um, I, I think newspapers are still important in this community. How did those papers, like especially like the early Picayune and the, I mean the, the ones that were white, how did they, how did they deal on racial matters? Um, by and large, not well. Um, by and large, they reflected uh, the views of the of, of the mainstream um, white community, which was either dismissive of black calls for equality, for the opening of uh, public schools to all. Um, the accessibility of, of government services, of, of election to public service, voter registration for those who pay taxes, estimated somewhere around 15 million by the time of the Civil War from the free black community. So it was either dismissive or just uh, they were just disregarded. Um, and I think that one of the ways that comes about uh, uh, comes across is even into the 20th century, um, black business news, social news, educational news uh, was just absent from the Picayune, from the state's item, until the very late 1960s, early 1970s. And that's why people um, have always really supported the, the Tribune, uh, I'm sorry, the Louisiana Weekly, Data News, and papers like that. Yeah, well, well there was times like, like those newspapers, like the Picayune and, and all that, where they, um, I know socially they had kind of a narrow view. I mean, uh, they would talk about entertainment, like things like at the Blue Room at the, uh, you know, or the Swan Room with the Motley on, but they never talk about the clubs back of the, you know, the back street type clubs. That's right. All yeah. of these wonderful entertainers were coming to New Orleans. Um, Ray Charles and uh, uh, Duke Ellington, uh, who came here in the 1930s and, and what have you. Um, none of that was covered in the uh, in the Picayune or in the in, in, in the evening papers. And so we're fortunate to have the uh, the surviving archives of the Louisiana Weekly. Um, that, that cover all of that information. This isn't relevant to the conversation. Whenever Ray Charles' name is mentioned, I always say he wasn't born in New Orleans, but he should have been. Imagine if he had grown up in New Orleans, in this environment, and the other the, the other musicians that were in town. I'm not quite sure if, I guess it would have been a contemporary of Fats Domino and people like that, and some of those early jazz musicians at the time. That's would have right. Seen that, would have seen that would have been to... Uh, uh, 
grew up in that time. Absolutely. If he had, if uh, if he had been able to collaborate, you know, on a, a lifelong basis, and we know how how tight those lifelong associations are with a Fats Domino or Dave Bartholomew, I think it would have just boosted the New Orleans music scene even more so on a national uh, national forefront. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think those attitudes began to change. I mean, obviously, by the 60s and after the passage of the Civil Rights Bill and all that. And in terms of the media, uh, I think the real liberating influence was television because uh, the TV stations started doing editorials. That's right. Uh, uh, that Channel 4 and then Channel 6. And they were, you know, pro-civil rights and pro-everything pro in that ilk. Uh, and, and, and that was part of one thing they wanted to do that they were saying, look, the voice of the newspapers is too conservative. We want to do a new voice, you know. And, and, and so I, I think the, the, the TV stations kind of dragged the, the, the newspapers into it after a while. That's right, television and, and, and then the rise uh, across the country, but in New Orleans, of the alternative newspapers, and I know that speaks to your history, um, the one that we're going to focus on is Figaro, which was, of course, founded in the early 70s by the Glassmans and Jack Davis and that group. And they gave a voice to Iris Kelso, who wrote for them, and to all of these other writers um, who covered arts and entertainment, as well as politics, but in a, a, a what would you call it, a conversational style, a, a very accessible style um, that was different from, say, the, the matter-of-fact coverage in the, in the picking you another item. Yeah. Well, figure out the example I'm talking about because they weren't bogged down by having to cover all the daily news, mm-hmm. and so they, they could really cover cultural and, and lifestyle. I think a good example is things like Mardi Gras Indians. Uh, there was never really coverage of the uh, Mardi Gras Indians until I, I think Figaro was one of the first to do it. Now, to be fair, the, it's not like the Mardi Gras Indians were looking for coverage either, okay? I That's mean, right. I mean, you had they, to find them. Yeah, 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 yeah. They lived in the back streets, and they were kind of intimidating, you know, and, and maybe the spy, boy would, the spy boy would say, hey, they got some funny-looking people coming here, you know, and so they were hard to get to. But once they got to and once they started getting coverage, and there was this whole revolution with the Mardi Gras Indians. Absolutely, absolutely. And the willingness to, to, to go into the back streets um, and to seek out, um, as we call them now, culture bearers in the Indian community, the baby dolls, and, and even in you know the Black Carnival Ball Society and all of that. Um, yeah, Figaro, uh, which did a pioneering piece on, um, on, on the Bunch Club back in the 1970s and all, um, it, they had the, 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 uh, the resources and the um, leeway to do that because they weren't bogged down by the daily news. Um, one of the other unique uh, f- uh, things about news coverage in a place like New Orleans uh, would be all of the disasters that we've had to, uh, that we've had to cover over the many centuries, uh, be it epidemics, be it incidents of, of violence and, and hysteria surrounding you know violence, racial episodes, and of course hurricanes, natural disasters. Sure. On sort of two different ends, we're going to cover those at the at the symposium in the 1870s with the uh, kidnapping case. Um, we're going to have um, Dr. Uh, Michael Ross, who's going to address the Digby kidnapping case, which was highly sensationalized. Well, tell me a little bit about that case. Well, you have a white uh, child, a toddler, uh, who is abducted, and with or without just cause, two um, relatively modest African-American women are uh, uh, detained uh, for her, for her, uh, her absence, her, her abduction, and over time, and this is this is really really racially charged from 1870 into 1871. The papers uh, just vilify these women 
um, before they're even given a fair trial, but it just speaks to, I think, the, the, the access, um, the agency that uh, the uh, people of color found in that period post-Civil War, um, and it was, a, it was a backlash against it. And he's covered that in his book uh, that he calls The Great Kidnapping Case uh, of New Orleans. And um, on the more recent end, we, uh, th- there will, the final panel will cover um, Hurricane Katrina and uh, the BP oil spill. Those, those disasters that have affected us uh, geologically as well as uh, personally. Yeah. Well, Katrina, I mean, I mean, nothing changed news coverage like Katrina did. I mean, mm-hmm. during those particular days, you know. And the, um, there's stories about Chris Rose, you know, the columnist of the Yes, Union, and, yes. Uh, some papers were printed, but they weren't getting distributed. So he'd go out and himself and just, you know, distribute the newspapers. And then and by this time, radio was a factor. Uh, uh, I think Katrina was radio's finest day, you know, because yes. it, it had such a far reach, like WBL, uh, you know, um, had such a reach. But, but I think things like the weekly were really useful in, in, like, families and people trying to find each other again. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, y- y- uh, the, the weekly has, has always been, um, I think, a very accessible news source, a very familiar news source, um, for the community that it serves. Everybody knows the, the, the Dejoa family. There are many business interests that were not limited to the newspaper, but funeral homes and insurance companies, real estate holdings, and all of that. Um, uh, you know, I was honored back, I think, in 2019 to do um, a, a very extensive history of the Dejoa family for, uh, for the newspaper, and it's just amazing to consider all of the connections they have, going back to a great-grandfather who was a state representative during Reconstruction, Aristide Dejoie. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that 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 uh, closeness to the community that they cover, I think, is appreciated. Okay, let me bounce back to something mm-hmm. I guess I should have asked you at, at the beginning, because I think it's people always get confused about. Um, you describe yourself as a proud Louisiana Creole. People always say, what's a Creole? Oh boy! What is it to you? <laughs> you want to start a whole a whole separate episode on that, uh, but no. To me, Creole is very simple. It, it's the it's the people who have colonial roots in Louisiana that harken back to our um, Latin flavored, uh, African influence, Native influence origins, predating uh, the entry of uh, Americans into Louisiana. And I think that. You, I'll be held up in uh, uh, in this in this viewpoint by documents and other things that Creole really comes to the forefront when we when those when that population and their descendants need to distinguish themselves from the newcomers, mm-hmm. the people who come here from Virginia, from Maryland, from England, uh, all of these places who are not rooted in Louisiana, who are Roman Catholic, who are French speaking, maybe Spanish speaking, or speakers of the unique Louisiana Creole dialect who have these familial, genealogical, cultural ties that harken back to here. And I think that amongst all Creoles, be they uh, white families who are Creole, families of color that are Creole, rootedness and, and nativity here is of such importance to them. That, that's, those are the common, the common characteristics that I think you find among those who identify as Creole. Now, over time, people add a racial element that it's mixed race. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. There are many, you know well-regarded old Louisiana families who are of white ancestry, of mixed ancestry, even of mostly uh, unmixed African ancestry who are Creole, but it, 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 it doesn't imply uh, some of what it, what it uh, 
some of what the meaning has for a lot of uh, contemporary New Orleanians at all. It's a cultural designation. I remember Sybil Moriel, the, the wife of former mayor, Dutch Moriel, did not like the word Creole. Sure, to her. sure. Especially when, when Dutch, uh, you know, was a candidate for public office and, and many others, you know, who ran a sort of down ballot as councilmen and would have uh, legislators and what have you, uh, they shied away from it because uh, it was seen as divisive um, within the within the within the black community. Um, but it and and, and I'm I will admit that it was probably used and and I'm gonna say very likely used by some uh, as a divider. But it it shouldn't have been. It's just an indication that these people have these long-standing cultural ties, familiar ties to Louisiana, as opposed to those who say came here from Mississippi, came here from, uh, you know, from other places, even came here from North Louisiana, who are not Creole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can appreciate that being, uh, I think you have, what, Old Devoyles Parish roots and, and things like that, uh, that harken back to France. So um, th- th- there's definitely yeah. a cultural sphere in which our ancestors operated that was different than the, the mainstream of the U.S. I remember the idea... After the Civil Rights Act passed, and it, it opened up public housing, and there was a migration into the New Orleans area of blacks in the rural south from uh-huh. rural Mississippi. So I think a lot of people in the black community, I mean, saw that as one category, but different from them. Sure. Because there was the old black native population, too. That's right. And you have to, and, you, and, 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 and the challenge for the politicians in that era was to speak to, and for the newspaper even, uh, to cover both segments of society. Um, I think one of the big dividers was, say, religion. Uh, You you know, the native population tended to be Roman Catholic. A lot of the newcomers were Protestant, be it Baptist or Methodist or AME or what have you. Um, And so you have to cover both worlds, both sets of social organizations, uh, family uh, events and things like that. Um, And I, I think to some extent that balance and act still exists and it exists even more so now in the mainstream, uh, or, or, or you could even venture to say white New Orleans community, because we have rooted New Orleanians who can answer the question, where'd you go to school? And they can respond, Koyezu or St. Aug, or mm-hmm. Brother Martin, or what have you. And all of these newcomers who are here who would probably say, you know, John Smith High School and Dubuque, Iowa, which yeah. has no meaning here. Yeah. Um, so we still see that. When you say St. Log, that has a meaning. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Or when you say Coyezo, Aloysius, or whatever, yeah. that, that has a meaning, yeah. yeah. Um, when, the, when the case like Dutch Moria, like when he first ran for mayor, even though there was a divided black community, he's the only black candidate, so he's got both of them. I, I mean, and so that really kind of helped launch it, his... It was time. I think it was time. Uh, New Orleans, you know, uh, followed even uh, a, f- a few other southern cities um, in electing um, its first African-American mayor. And so I think that it was a triumph um, for the black community. And uh, I would venture to say, from what I've learned from you and from others on different panels and things, that uh, Dutch proved to be a, f- a fairly effective mayor um, for the city. I think when the uh, LEH did their uh, study, uh, he was voted, or, the, or their survey, he was voted the most uh, popular mayor of the 20th century. So uh, there's something to be said for him uh, with his pugnacious nature and and all of the challenges he faced. Well, for me, because this is, this is, for me, a telling moment, when um, not long after he was elected, um, he was elected, what, in 79, I believe? Okay. Mm-hmm. Not long after that was when 
this pol police strike was looming, which became the Mardi Gras police strike. Yeah. And Morial stood firmly against what the police wanted. They wanted union. They wanted to unionize. They wanted pay raises. They wanted anyway. They wanted all kinds of things. And he stood firmly against the police, which is pretty much where the public was too. And yet he had been a union lawyer. I, I remember talking to somebody one time who who had known Dutch, and he said privately he was torn by that because the um, um, you know the police wanted to form a union, and and, and he was standing up against them. Um, in, in the white community, though, especially in the early days of the, the, the strike, the white community saw, well, the police is the good guys, okay, and Moriel, who's his first black mayor, is not going to be one of the good guys, okay. But yet what happened is that the white community stood with Moriel on the whole thing, and, and I think that that really helped solidify uh, relationships, okay. Absolutely, and I, and I think I think I think they did that for the good of the city, um, recognizing that the city could not be subject to, um, to the to the dictates of the police union, or or, or any other union, um, and and you mentioned Mardi Gras, the Mardi, the famous Mardi Gras strike, and that's one another one of those unique aspects of New Orleans that journalists uh, have always had to cover, um, that along with all of our. Uh, internal cultural disti distinctions. You talk about the, you know, the famous, our famous Yat dialect and the the Yats of New Orleans. Yeah. Um, and Michael Tizaran is going to cover some of that in uh, his uh, overview of George Harriman, who he credits as one of the first to put the Yat dialect in print with his Crazy Cat cartoon series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because Harriman was a born and bred New Orleanian, and he would use some of that unique dialect that that, that we employ down here. Um, as the captions um, for his cartoons. And, of course, they're also going to discuss the famous John Churchill Chase in that um, and some of our other editorial cartoonists. Well, I understand, I don't, I don't know a lot about this, but part of the evolution of the, the Yat dialect is that there was so many people that lived in the eastern part of the city where there was a German population, right? And then over time, the German population, if you took phrases, regularly spoken phrases, but using the way it was structured in German, like it became like asking someone, "Where are you?" If you use if you use a German structure, it would be, "Where are you at?" or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, it was the incorporated diffusion of the German structure into the American English. Now that came, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, and, and then it was like, yeah, it was people like like they Tisserand and, and Bunny Matthews. Bunny Matthews, yeah, who yeah, will also be prominently featured, and we just acquired the Bunny Matthews. Uh, archive uh, uh, within the last few years at the at, at our research center at the collection, absolutely the German influence in the lower sections of the city, of course the French Creole influence, which also has that 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 different syntax uh, sentence structure, um, and of course the, the the Irish presence and the Sicilian presence. Uh, if anybody's ever heard any of the old recordings or videotape of uh, uh, Louis Prima. You know, Louis Prima empl employed that 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 garbled Yat New Orleans esque yeah. accent all the time in his performances, to the amusement of his audiences around the country, and probably it was just a reflection of real life for his uh, audiences right here yeah. in New Orleans. Well, even if you didn't know what he was saying, it was funny to listen. It was funny to, to listen to. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, he was very comedic, and of course, Louis Prima said a lot of uh, Louis Armstrong in him too. That's right. Okay. That's right. Like, like the white man's Louis Armstrong, right? That's it, right. It, 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 um, 
Just saying back to that police strike for a second, mm -hmm. I think one of the great moments in Carnival history was, all right, so here's a city on edge, okay, and they're all being told, the police are telling them, we're not going to parade, and if we're not going to parade, there's not going to be Mardi Gras, it's going to all be dead and all, everything. So there is this day when the captains, and they're just all white, okay, call a press conference, and they say that they have voted not to parade, and they said, we're going to not be held hostage by the Teamsters Union. Mm -hmm. And so doing the announcement was the captain of Rex, and standing next to him was Dutch Morial. So here's this moment. Here you got the, you got the Rex captain and Mayor Morial sure. standing together, united on this. All right. Well, once that was announced, then the police lost their leverage. I they, mean, they, they did. You, you know, they can't say we're going to bully to not parade when they already said we're not going to parade. All right. And that became a really thoughtful moment. And from that moment on, just. Um, Moriel and certainly the, 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 uh, the Mardi Gras community became very close together, okay? And it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a good moment. That's right. When you have, when you have sort of the, the, the people who are at the pinnacle of two different worlds, you know, the, 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 at that time still burgeoning, um, you know, a, a black political community with I like to call the alphabet soup, you know, bowl, gold, soku, all of that, plus... Um, the, 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 the captain of, 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 of Rex uh, standing together and taking a side uh, against the Teamsters Union, it was, it was um, a, 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 an important moment. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Teamsters Union as opposed to just the local police union because a lot of people forget that fact that the police union allied themselves with the Teamsters Union, which is a, a huge you know, op, uh, conglomerate, um, and pushed a lot of those those labor challenges at that time. And that was a, yeah, that was a big mistake to me because mm -hmm. the guy who came in representing the team, all of a sudden the guy who was the, the spokesman for the cause was the Teamsters guy out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. He's one of these guys who opened these open collar shirts, you know, with a chain and with little things on and all that, you know. And and I think I think his name was Valente too, which is not a good name. Uh, if uh, uh, you know when you when 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 there's two Italian in, in New Orleans and so. But he kind of drove a lot of people away from it also. So, um, all right. What's the future, uh, especially, with, especially with the black media? I'm sorry? What's the future going to be? Uh, can the newspaper thrive? Can they grow? Or is it like all print is in trouble, no matter all print, the, all print media race or gender, they're all in trouble. That's right. All print media, be it mainstream, be it ethnic-focused, uh, community-focused uh, newspapers are in trouble. Um, I think that... Uh, just speaking personally, New Orleans will will there will be more longevity here. I think people are attached to their tactile newspapers. Uh, I think that we are a city that values uh, heirlooms, values um, um, physical uh, artifacts, and so people want those clippings. They want they want the, the newsprint. They want to be for able sure. to, uh, to to preserve that in their in their family archives. So I think if for no other reason. There'll be a, a place for, uh, for for print editions, um, but um, Verite, uh, the the moderator for the day for the symposium will be Terry Bakke from Verite News. Um, these online sources uh, will definitely gain ground, definitely uh, gain ground. Um, blogging, I think, will be more important. I think you're going to get a lot of hyper local coverage because New Orleanians are hyper local by nature. Um, you know, one of the things I proudly declare sometimes is that I've never, in 30-odd years, lived below Canal Street, really never lived outside of, say, a 12, 13-block radius. Um, and so because of that, we like mm -hmm. we like that really, So what neighborhood really do you live in now? 
Uptown, Uptown New Orleans, uh-huh. uh, the Marlin neighborhood, and now I've sort of moved a little bit further up into the university section, but uh-huh. always Uptown New Orleans. Never, yeah. never lived downtown or, any, or, or, or across the River West yeah. Bank or anything like that. But because of that, we want to have coverage that reflects people we know, institutions we know. And so I think that that's a vehicle for people who may have never had the background, uh, professionally or otherwise, to get into print journalism will we'll do the online thing. Yeah. Um, um, social media, I think, will continue to, 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 to be popular. I think that sometimes our, our established outlets some have to compete with, with, with social media uh, on, on breaking yeah. news. No, I, I think that's always possible. But I always say, for community to function, there's got to be at least one daily newspaper. That, that True. A, a daily newspaper plays a role that no one else plays, and that they have more people, they got more staff, and a lot of their staff are beat reporters specializing in one area. And so the real background in the news you get from the daily newspaper, whereas TV can never afford to have like a hundred reporters out there and all sure. that, you know. So I think that that void will be filled by some of these by some of these amateur outlets, you know, the the, the blogging, the podcast, yeah. social media, uh, and what and, and what have you. Um, I think that uh, that that uh, one thing that uh, you covered well, uh, a lot of reporters who have already passed on is that they understood the nuances to New Orleans, and that's one of the things that I fear about some of the more uh, freestyle, freelance uh, journalism that's out there is that, uh, you know, you can move to New Orleans for four or five years and think that you have a grasp on it, but be, be, be sadly mistaken. And yeah. so I just wonder whether they've captured all of those nuances about about uh, the city. Yeah. No, it takes those guys that still have a sense of it, uh, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I was just involved in a, in a book project, and the, um, the publisher was one of these out-of-town publishing companies, and they came back with with proofs and um, they changed when I wrote Grand Duke Alexis because in their style books it was just Alexis but Grand Duke would be lowercase and I said well no in New Orleans that's his name his name is Grand Duke Alexis you don't put him lowercase and then they changed Oysters Rockefeller oh they my said goodness. they said we use a Chicago style manual and according to the, the, the Chicago style manual the food is in lowercase, and the name of it is that. Well, nobody in, in New Orleans in the cold. Okay, and so we had to go back, back and forth with them, and finally they gave in on, on that point. You know, with, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a it, that's a, a, a culinary um, icon of a dish in New Orleans, and it's a, I would argue it's a proper noun in New Orleans. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, those little things, those little things matter. Um, absolutely, absolutely. You may mention to uh, Verite, and there are a few of these, I'm not sure what to call them, uh, they call them non-profits and all this, but what they are is that they're, they have a staff and they report news and they, and they make their news available to other services. And they've, they've had some good reporters um, that do this, but it's only a few people on each staff, and I notice there's a lot of turnover uh, on those things, okay? I, I think it's a I think it's a training ground. Uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I think it's a training ground for a lot of younger um, journalists. Um, uh, it's it's gig work for a lot of more seasoned journalists. Um, and yeah, people people move on over yeah. over time. We're going to have the final panel of the symposium. Um, Vicky Mayer, who's at Tulane, and Gordon Russell, who is actually managing editor of the Picayune Slash Advocate. They're going to talk about that transformation. 
um, in their sort of open-ended uh, panel discussion that will that will wrap up the day before the uh, before the uh, final reception. So um, I don't know what to expect, um, but I know that it will be good, and it will it will talk about some of the national trends on how they apply it to New Orleans. Yeah. Do you have a sense about the of the future of black journalists or or kids going into journalism now? Are they interested in it? I think I think I think we're going to see um, a, a real slowdown um, in terms of the numbers of, of uh, kids who go into journalism, particularly in, in the African American community, because there is such an emphasis on STEM, uh, math, science, technology, engineering, those subjects. Uh, to the detriment of all the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you're going to find fewer and fewer history majors, English majors, um, um, and, and, of course, journalism majors. Uh, some of them may wind up, you know, mid-career, uh, late-career changes in uh, the press world, um, but as to, to make it a, a, a lifelong profession, I think you're going to find fewer and fewer people of all stripes uh, gone, in, gone into journalism. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's sad because there's something to be said for that training, yeah. the discipline that comes with being a um, college-educated uh, uh, yeah. writer or or news uh, or a press press uh, person. I talked to a former journalism professor at Loyola at the time about that, that very question about why aren't there more blacks going into journalism, and he talked about it with his, with his colleagues. They said one thing is that. Nationwide, there's such a high demand for black journalists. So a kid gets out of school, man, he can write his own ticket. That's I, right. I mean, he, he doesn't need to be in New Orleans, you know, for, for 20 years. You know, he'd be in Chicago. And so there, there, there is a demand for him. Absolutely. I think there's a demand for representation, um, a seat at the table, um, in newsrooms, in press rooms. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's, a, it's a great uh, field to, uh, to enter. Um, but I just don't see that carrying over into the uh, matriculation rates in college programs in, in journalism or, or in uh, media yeah. or mass comm. Um, and, and, and he also pointed that compared to other professions, not as high paying of a profession. And, and, and again, you get this really bright student, you know, and, and they can kind of call their shots on pay also. So they have a lot of advantages. I mean, if, uh, you know, if they're young and bright, you know, there are places to go. That's right. That's right. And like I said, many of them are being pushed into business um, or into, uh, in, 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 into the, uh, the medical uh, profession. Yeah. The, uh, getting back to the paper like, like the Louisiana Weekly and the, the Tribune, you know, a big movement when somebody is always seen as an ideal, and I think it's happening, is an evolution of a black middle class. Mm-hmm. All right. When they started Pontchartrain Park, we wanted to have a black middle class. And there are, there are lots of signs of it happening. But when you have a black middle class, <clears throat> they're going to have a lot in common with the white middle class. Of course. All right. Yeah. And so are they going to be reading the Louisiana Weekly and the Tribune, or did they better serve their audiences when their audiences uh, were more divided? No, I, I think that there's still a great demand for, um, for the unique media outlets to, you know, to the black community, to other ethnic communities, because there are just so many layers so many um, 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 institutions that exist that aren't well known um, to, 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 to the mainstream community, and, and there's a need for that coverage, especially in a city like New Orleans, where just numerically it skews, it, it, it skews African-American. So uh, 
uh, there's there's a need for for, the, for that press coverage, and I, I think I think the business will be uh, will uh, the demand will be sustained, ongoing, um, but whether it will help the the organs, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, um, I think that uh, one of the ch- in fact I know one of the challenges that the weekly faces that New Orleans Tribune, Data News, all of these is is that they can't retain bright young well. Uh, educated uh, uh, writers um, because they have so many options. Yeah. yeah. You know, another thing, I remember talking to uh, a priest who at the, the time, I, I forget the name which it was, uh, but, but he was uh, president of St. Aug. Mm-hmm. And we was kind of talking about the future too. And of course, there's a lot to believe in, with it, especially with, with St. Aug. But he did point out that he remembered that seeing the kids coming in and leaving, that they'd all be walking to school because they all lived in the neighborhood. Now he looks out and he sees cars waiting for him because they live in eastern New Orleans now. They're, you know, sure. they're, well, you know, they're no longer within that walking distance of school. They're, they're, you know, they're in different neighborhoods now. Absolutely, uh, and that and that shakeup uh, is, a, is 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 uh, is reality um, for a lot of our traditional institutions, including schools like St. Aug, uh, the old Xavier Prep, now St. Catherine Drexel Prep. Is that you're not getting. Uh, young people who live within the heart of the city who can walk or hop a, a quick bus ride to school, they're driving in from New Orleans East, from Slidell and other parts of the North Shore, from the f- extremes of the West Bank, even into the River Parishes. Uh, there are kids in Reserve and Laplace who will come down to attend mm-hmm. a St. Aug or, or a prep or, or, or things like that. So they don't have the time to, say, linger after school for the uh, unstructured time. And that's mm-hmm. what, you know, real friendships and real... Uh, camaraderie, I think, is formed is uh, is outside of the structured school day when you have band sure. and you have football and all of those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, that, that that culture is changing. Uh, now, you, now you were saying, oh, grad, how how was it? Oh, I loved it. I loved the the experience of four years at Saint Aug. Um, I am still very close to the hundred and six, hundred and seven out of us um, who graduated in my class. In fact, th- uh, later this year will be our fifteenth. Uh, reunion year, still re- still pretty young, um, but we we're very close, and um, uh, all many of us give back to the school. I'm a past president of the New Orleans chapter of the St. Aug alumni, and uh, try to be as active as I as I can. And it's a wonderful community. Uh, I've heard stories that in places as far removed as Korea, uh, one New Orleanian will see that purple and gold jacket or a baseball cap, and has run across the street. To go and greet another Purple Knight, um, you know, uh, in Europe or in Asia, places like that, because it's a brotherhood, and I think a lot of the old Catholic League uh, schools uh, uh, and private schools and what have you, we feel that way. That uh, we not only got an education, but we got character formation, and we got uh, a community, a brotherhood or sisterhood for life. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, anyway, just kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, when, you know when you talk about and we've also produced a fair number of journalists. We have Dean Baquet and the Boyer yeah. brothers and yeah. uh, uh, all of these all these individuals who have made a name for themselves in uh, in, in, in journalism. Yeah, um, except the number is misleading because they look at TV and every station is going to have a black anchor on there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean mm-hmm. it, it, okay, sure. And so the audience back there is saying, well, you know, it's all everywhere. But it's not. I mean, the number of reporters, that on the, and it's not because they want to be that way. I, I, I know news directors would love to have um, some really um, uh, framed black reporters. It's because the reason we mentioned, they got better offers elsewhere, you know, and so. Uh, 
Sure, one of my peers uh, uh, received more, luc- uh, a more lucrative offer from a station in North Louisiana, and then once he became a seasoned veteran with five, seven years under his belt, uh, moved to Tennessee, Virginia, um, and has gone on to, to you know to greater heights than and, and perhaps New Orleans could afford. So yeah. that's the challenge we face. But you know that's true of all of our um, uh, professional uh, endeavors in New Orleans and, and um, across all segments of society. Is what are we going to do with our young people who we with for whom we emphasize school, higher education, and then they they're here in New Orleans and what do they do? I find that things haven't changed much. That the options primarily are city government, or parochial government, you know, the clerk's office, uh, court system, or the, the, uh, the, the school system. Uh, those are sort of the, 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 the bedrock still of, of a lot of the, the, the uh, middle class, working middle class here. Um, and beyond that, I, I really don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, you know, our papers have been there to cover it all. Um, and there's a lot to cover about the newspapers themselves, and that's what we plan to do on February the 24th at the uh, collection symposium. Okay. Um, before you all go, Dave Walker. Dave works for the Historic New Orleans Collection, but he had a long career in journalism with the, with the, with the Picayune and all that. Um, seeing it from the outside now, how do you feel about the future now in journalism? Um, it's tough, and we've just been through a couple of really terrible months in the industry right now. Layoffs at the LA Times, Washington Post, uh, Sports Illustrated, which I grew up, it was the, the Bible of sports coverage. Uh, and there have been uh, some hemorrhaging, there's been some hemorrhaging in the business. I'm confident that there'll always be a need for um, news coverage. There are outlets that do it really well. I think, uh, I'm, I feel so grateful that there's still a Times Picayune. A lot of my friends still work there, and I'm a subscriber, and um, I hope that they hang in there um, because there are some severe challenges right now. I think the, I think the Picayune does a great job. I think they're a good newspaper. It was your second line. I'm a subscriber. I mean, I'm a subscriber too. But people, the upcoming generation isn't subscribing to newspapers anymore. No, they've they've just got so many other ways to get news and. And what I like about and what I loved about the journalism profession was it was news that was uh, vetted, organized, curated, and edited um, by career professionals. And um, that's one of the things that young people are losing. And the opportunity to work with seasoned editors uh, is a rarity. Um, And I think that's another concern, um, but uh, in the Terry Bach case, a, an example with Verite, where he's working with young people there who are um, uh, so lucky to be working with a seasoned journalist. The journalists who work with Gordon Russell at the Times-Picayune, same thing. Um, people who have uh, understand the continuity of news coverage and the uh, all of the things that you two talked about through this uh, hour, uh, all of that history is important into important in the formation of today's news, and the symposium is uh, approaching that in a, in a way that shows change has been constant in New Orleans journalism and in New Orleans newspapers, and uh, it will continue to be uh, a part of life for um, the practitioners. A lot of the stuff on the internet that you see on Facebook and all that, there's no filter there. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
in in our business, if we're going to say something critical of a person, we need to contact that person and get their viewpoint at the very least. Explain that well, people in the they don't care. I mean, you know, you know, they just pop off. Yeah, and um, that's unfortunately what that's the currency right now, uh, the social media world. And uh, I mean, I use social media all the time. We, I use it professionally, and I did when I was a journalist. Yeah. But um, it's um, there's an awful lot of information out there now, um, more than ever available, but more than ever, um, I don't think as accurate and yeah. as um, carefully compared. And if you if if you rate the world's newsmakers in terms of importance, they have seen on the internet two people: Meghan Markle and uh, <laughs> and Taylor Swift. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you know, for a long time, papers didn't really cover popular culture very well, and that's where uh, an outlet like Figaro came in and the Gambit, and um, uh, and it finally upped the newspaper game to the point where we had a full staff uh, in the living section of people covering uh, classical music and popular music and television, and um, it was there's they don't have that staffing anymore, but they've got some great people doing their best and doing lots of good work. It's just that that constancy of change mm-hmm. is um, sort of the theme. I remember one category of coverage that was, that was important to me was the TV coverage, that the uh, picky is really important in TV coverage, and you can find out why that anchor left, or what's the ratings, and that, that sort of thing. And there's just no coverage about that anymore, you know? Very seldom anymore. It was, it just became uh, less of an emphasis. That's why I'm at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Well, yeah. if I can, Errol, I, th- that's a question I have. Uh, Dave, you move, I would say, seamlessly and, and much to our benefit at the collection from, you know, being an old old, old rag man uh, with the Picayune into, um, I would say, for-profit, but in our case, non-profit uh, world uh, at the Historic New Orleans Collection. D- do you see a lot of that taking place where a lot of people who were trained up in traditional traditional media outlets are moving into businesses, be they for-profit or non-profit, and has it been mutually beneficial? It, it has. The, the, the important skills are portable, uh, mm. which has been my experience. And because of the years I spent in journalism and the transition to digital journalism and having to teach myself though that new vocabulary, uh, which is the vocabulary we use to communicate about the, the collection now, um, is uh, was really useful and 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 it was hard. It was, uh, um, but it's also, um, and I'm lucky to be at the collection. There are other communications jobs that aren't as stimulating and um, and validating and uh, interesting. Um, but yeah, I think uh, uh, there's a lot of us out out in the um, in the world of nonprofits and for-profit businesses are still in the communications business, but it's um, uh, it's not the um, uh, objective, uh, or at least not as uh, it's not the newsroom. It's not yeah. the newsroom culture of a, a team of people working toward uh, telling complete stories in, in, in every day's paper. You know what? Even if you walk into was described as being a fully functioning newsroom today, you'd walk in and you wouldn't see anybody there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so remote work. Huh? Yeah, they're all, they're all working from home. You know, so. Yeah, and it's become a decentralized occupation now because people can work remotely. And uh, in almost every <coughs> job in the paper, except actually putting the plates on the press, uh-huh. um, the, um, 
and I don't know if they even have place on the press no. anymore. But, um, uh, you know, that's true. And I miss, I'll say, the newsroom. Um, that was an uh, incredible training ground um, where I worked next to Chris Rose or uh, Keith Spiro, some of the names of, of the folks who were still there doing great work, um, like, like Keith and, and Doug McCash, who were my living section um, buddies. Um, but I, there was definitely a, a great atmosphere of learning and appreciation and sometimes criticism. That was an important part of the newsroom life. Sure. Uh, um, <coughs> I'll get back to Jerry in a second, but, but, but with the collection, what else? anything else coming up? Uh, oh. uh, yes, sir. We've got uh, uh, two really interesting exhibits that will be on view February through May, all about the um, world of fraternal organizations. Jari's co-curator co of our the local companion exhibit, uh, all about the history of Freemasons and fraternal organizations in New Orleans, which is a fascinating history. Oh, yeah, I want you back. Fraternal <laughs> organizations, okay? Sure. Nail it down. We'll call you. Okay. All I'd, right. I'd, I'd love to talk about that topic. And, the, and there's an, uh, the traveling exhibit that opens uh, in a couple of weeks is all about the folk art of Freemasonry. Uh, so these, um, the objects and theatrical um, items that they used in their rituals is what this display is about. And it's some of it's uh, beautiful and some of it's really strange. And, mm. But it's all great portal into this mostly unseen or unknown world, little known world of these fraternal organizations, which is a, they're very important to civic life, mm -hmm. as Jari will tell you when he comes back on. Yeah. Uh, it, but there are two really good, uh, really excellent exhibitions upcoming. And then beyond that, we've got um, uh, in the summer, uh, uh, an exhibit that we've put together that opens in July uh, about the history of incarceration in Louisiana. Um, which tells this, a story that goes back a couple of centuries up through the modern times, and that's going to be a, a very wow. uh, interesting and challenging exhibition to uh, look into that history. Yeah, well, it sounds fascinating, uh, and so looking for now the um, what we're talking about now. It's called Above the Fold: The History of Newspapers in Louisiana. How can somebody access it? Uh, the place to access information about the symposium is our website hnoc.org. Okay, but if they want to hear it, I mean, if, if they listen the, uh, down the road, yeah. It will not be, it will not be recorded in, uh, in live time, but the uh, recordings will be made available afterwards on our website. Okay. So you do segments of it on the website, or, or what are you saying? I think, is that right, Dave? We'll, we'll have every session. Every, every session, session will be, be available, yeah. And okay. eventually released on our YouTube page. Mm -hmm. But we'll have ways to find that. We'll have navigation to that Wayfound page on, our, on website. our website. Yeah. And our social media will share it all. Yeah, okay. Um, so fairly soon after the symposium, all of the things we you all talked about today will be available for free um, to dive back into it. Okay, well, great. Well, Jared, thank you. You're doing good work here, good information. Thank Dave, th thanks for visiting the... Uh, our newsroom, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Errol. Uh, as it is, and uh, sounds like a great program. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts, and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico, in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life. Call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me.
Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.